Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Vita Podcast, where we help educate military veterans and their spouses on opportunities in Web3. Our plan is to host a series of industry leaders, many of whom are veterans or spouses themselves, so that we can learn about their journey down the crypto rabbit hole while understanding opportunities for transitioning veterans in the industry. I'm Chris Perkins, president of CoinFunds. I'm a combat Marine veteran who spent 15 years on Wall Street before transitioning into the crypto space. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sponsor, Luca, who's dedicated their time and resources to make this podcast possible. For our 28th episode, we'll be speaking with Marine Corps veteran, Devin James, Technology Director of Web3 Working Group. Welcome, Devin. Thank you so much. Well, tell us about your background, man. How did you get here? How did I get here? Uh, well, I started as a nerd long before I was a Marine. Um, my very first job was I was doing dial-up uh, tech support at an ISP in 97, 98. So like when most people thought that the whole internet was AOL and a few people had started to learn that there's this independent internet that you can connect to from your local little city, uh, I had the calls from the people that really wanted to get on but couldn't quite figure it out. You know, we had people that would like, I got the modem and it's it's sitting here on top of my computer and why isn't it working? And it turns out it's not connected. This is long before there was wireless technology. So uh, it, it, it was interesting that I happened to have that experience because now uh, two to three decades later, I see a lot of the same, uh, uh, a lot of similarities with this incredibly important emergent technology that is really hard to use and it's still early, but people can tell how important it is. Um, but then I, I, I joined the Marine Corps. Actually, I was going to just uh, use a ROTC program and uh, do a reservist thing and just drill on the weekends. And so I thought, hey, you know, if I'm just doing this two weeks a year and, and a weekend a month, I might as well blow stuff up. So I went uh, <laughs> infantry and uh, my, my, form, my, my civilian boss at the time, the guy that kind of talked me into doing it, uh, was a forward observer in a, a Marine Corps straight leg infantry unit. Uh, and so he said, if you join, I'll come back and I'll train you. Turned out it's not that straightforward because I thought, you know, as soon as I got to my unit, I'd be able to be, become a forward observer. Uh, that's not the case. It takes a couple of years. You got to put in the work. Um, but actually, funny enough, um, when I got in, I, I, I then found out that my grandpa was a forward observer, an air forward observer in World War II. And I only found oh, this cool. out after I became one myself. Uh, so it was uh, a very interesting job, especially for a nerd, you know, that 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 likes physical activity. So you have a whole lot of uh, very stressful, you know, 30 mile marches and stuff with the 33 pound mortar tube and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but then you get to have some fun with the nerdery with the little, you know, all the little dials yeah. and stuff when you do fire direction center and then go out on your own with the radio and a, and a, a pair of binoculars and, and call in fire missions. So I did some really great stuff, especially during training, a lot of, a lot of really fun stuff. Um, but I had joined in January of 2001 thinking, you know, time of peace. And then, of course, 9-11 happens, I think, uh, a month after I graduated School of Infantry, and the world changed, of course. So we got activated right away. We were um, set up for just a QRF mission on the West Coast. Um, and eventually, our battalion commander kind of got bored of that and thought, you know, there isn't, like, honestly, our job was like, if there's another attack, we're going to go do crowd control kind of stuff. And our battalion commander decided this is boring. This isn't really putting us to the kind of work that we should be doing. We're a straight leg infantry unit. Let's focus on that for a while. And we just trained really just ridiculously hard. And we were right next to um, uh, first division schools. And so we actually got to compete in some division schools comps. And we, we, we won on a few different fronts. And so that got DC's attention. And they said when they were getting ready for the, the invasion of Iraq for the first time since World War II, they put a, uh, a reserve unit on the front line. 
So we were part of uh, RCT1 going right up the middle here in the Baghdad. Uh, and that was a that was a, a weird experience that I never expected to have. Certainly never, never expected to have. Um, and uh, did a little bit more after that, you know, uh, one more deployment to uh, Djibouti, Africa in uh, 2006, the third front of the war on terror. Um, and and then really that all just, that to some degree, that very much led into why I became really interested in decentralized technology when I discovered it. I discovered it in 2013 or so. And just having an awareness of how much reality can be distorted by information not being permanent or uh, not being able to really weight it when it comes across the internet and when it comes across these you know very few distribution channels meant I was very much open to the idea of oh wow permanent things that can be you know cryptographically proven are going to have so much importance in the future um, and so I just got incredibly excited about that back in 2013 2014 and now an OG crypto person as a result we've been in this for for quite a while now yeah that's awesome man C can you tell us by the way i was a ford observer as well uh for we really oh yeah oh, that's fantastic yeah. that's fantastic uh, an artillery officer so you know a little bit different. Oh, awesome I was in always, the... but it was always a weapons company when we were with the infantry so like i humped that 81 millimeter mortar more <laughs> times than i can count so yeah. totally know your pain and i feel it today Props. yeah so do you have any like formative moments in the Marine Corps that, that would, that, you know, shaped you going forward? You talked a little bit about uh, the permanence of information. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, well, okay. Realizing the awesome power of the U S military or any, any advanced military when it comes to taking on another, another nation was stunning. You know what I mean? Like being a part of an invasion was stunning because it was very fast, very powerful, very destructive they didn't have a chance, honestly. Like we kept on being told, like we're going to see resistance here, we're going to see resistance here. There's a line of tanks that's going to stop us here. Da, da, da. And there was, you know, it was a, it was a four week fight or so, three three to four week fight. I always I talk about it as basically it's driving from San Diego to Las Vegas over the course of three weeks. So you're not moving fast, you know, when you compare to you know your normal kind of a, a drive to Vegas, but you're taking over a country as you go, um, and that's a that's an awesome power to kind of realize. Um, but also, you, you know, when I was 22, 21, I certainly didn't uh, appreciate at the time the importance of where we were. You know, this is literally the cradle of civilization. And, you know, it came out in the news in kind of this recent decade that ISIS went specifically destroying historical cultural monuments because they wanted to destroy them. We destroyed a lot of stuff like that unintentionally, just because of how powerful our systems can be. Um, and and there's something to that the 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 degree of loss of both infrastructure in the in the major cities themselves as as they started to get hit, and then historical knowledge, you know, as a side effect of 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 this kind of destruction when you happen to be in the cradle of civilization. Both of those were were really resounding, and also. I've had a, a great deal of respect for our military, you know, growing up, you know, knowing my uncle telling me stories about my, my grandfather in World War II and stuff like that. Like he was the very first or amongst the very first allies on on uh, the German side of of, of the uh, the Rhine over the he 
discovered something called the bridge at Remagen, um that wasn't supposed to be up. He and his pilot found it and they discovered it and they got something like 100,000 troops across before it was destroyed. Um, and so my whole family had these, you know, these moto kind of patriotic stories about how, how, how important that military service is and stuff like that. So I've always had a great deal of respect for it. Um, but coming to realize the difference between the effectiveness of a military and it was absolutely impressive the entire time through like at opportunities for people to get really emotional and no longer effective they kept it together and did an incredibly important and impressive job so this is an awesome power but unfortunately it felt like it was being wielded especially in retrospect by people that didn't respect that power you know the civilian leadership that sent us to war whether they knew that there was lies involved or whether they were being manipulated by other people who who were creating the lies i don't know i don't want to you know try to try to claim that we can figure that out but there were lies involved there there was there was half truths there was not entire truth you know et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. and so you look back on it and you go we we worked really hard we lost tens of thousands of people, and you look at the 22 vets a day that, that take their own lives, that's way more than we lost in combat at this point. Like, that's way more. That's horrifying. Um, and we just kind of destroyed a country to where it, two of them, actually more than that at this point, that have had a hard time coming back since then. And if it's for the right purpose, that can be a very important and 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 necessary thing to do. If it's not, if it's for political you know, short-term means, if it's because, you know, they're being dishonest about what their intentions are, that's really important. And so kind of the, the, the things that resonated with me were both the importance of infrastructure and how everything is based on when you destroy a country's infrastructure, it can take a very long time for them to have any amount of, of, of growth again, any kind of uh, impact, positive impact on the world, you know, et cetera, um, prosperity, et cetera. Um, and also, when when the the systems of information delivery are manipulated horrible things can happen you know through 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 nothing but the best of intentions of everyone along the way that's tough to sit with you know what i mean especially when you're a part of it and you're like there's there's nothing about my own actions or any of the actions of the people around me that i took issue with it was the very fact that we were it was i i'm i when i think about this i'm reminded of the the smedley butler quote that um war is hell and Wars Iraq or the, the Wars Iraq, yeah. That that if you go really deep into it, it's he he he's right that like it's an incredibly powerful thing. If you use it effectively, it can be good. But if it's if it's a racket, if it's being used by you know corporate forces, that's that's horrible. You should you should you need to to guard against that kind of thing happening. Um, and and I like it, like I was kind of saying, I think that's a big reason of why the technology behind blockchain and, and or behind Bitcoin with blockchain and decentralized technology is so important. The more that our sources of information have been centralized, you know, in the past two decades, we or three decades now, we've gone from 500 sources of, of, of news that most people take in down to, I think it's four or five companies at this point. And now maybe Warner Brothers and, and another one, or Paramount are going to merge and we're getting down to like four, you know, Fox doesn't really has one channel it isn't really a, a media uh, system itself disney is you know pulling in absolutely everything comcast is taking everything else so like we're down to like four corporate boards that control almost the entirety of our news flow and that's terrifying like the amount of power there in so few people's hands when people think they have diversity of of, of ideas and thoughts going through stuff and it's, it's very very concentrated 
All right. So, so you come back from the war. Um, tell us about your transition, you know, back into civilian life and then ultimately into Web3. Uh, yeah, I started, well, uh, I, I first kind of went into a little semi-career in the visual effects industry. I was a, a compositor in Hollywood for a while. I, I did uh, 3D and compositing um, on a handful of different TV shows, uh, some movies. I worked on 2012. I worked on Benjamin Button. Um, I worked on a really great show at the Jim Henson Company um, called Sid the Science Kid, and I absolutely loved that. It was really a blast. Yeah. Um, but I got out in 2009-ish. I, I kind of picked, I was very, very lucky. I picked just the right time. Uh, the industry was very much fracturing and, and splitting across the entire world. Um, and I think it was that year that uh, Life of Pi won for the Academy Award for Best Visual Effects, while outside a whole bunch of its visual effects artists were, were um, uh, picketing because they had not been paid for like six months and then they got laid off. And like, so the industry was just completely devastated. And I picked just the right time to kind of leave. And it was devastated largely because the rest of the world was getting onto the internet, getting high speed connections to the internet, good quality computers, and had the talent to take care of a whole bunch of stuff that used to necessarily be in Los Angeles. And so we were competing with the entire world and we couldn't really keep up kind of thing. Um, so I went entrepreneurial for a while. I did uh, two different startups. We started with um, a company called Happy Owl Studio that designed products for as the iPad came out, we were one of the first iPad cases to announce and we did really well. We sold with, with Apple for a while, but uh, we were manufacturing over in China. And after a year and a half or so of doing that and going over there a few times to kind of get to understand the whole process and meet my factories and stuff like that, we just kind of decided that it didn't really align with our with our values as much. You know, we wanted very much to kind of use higher quality materials uh, that are in better. I mean, it's, I wouldn't call it slave conditions at all. Like the, China is doing a very good job of taking care of its people very effectively. Um, and like while we were doing this, uh, the the average um, uh, uh, cost for a, a manufacturer, like a skilled worker in manufacturing doubled in China, um, which kind of started to price it out. But also like China was becoming like joining the, 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 the first world as far as consumers kind of stuff. So, so good for them. Um, but uh, they were using materials we weren't really entirely happy with. Um, and we really, you know, wanted to employ domestic labor and stuff like that. So we, we came up with our next product was um, a, uh, a, a cash box, basically, for an iPad and Square. Like, we kind of recognized that it's $10,000 for kind of the lowest cost for a, a POS system. And so a lot of, like, coffee shops don't do that kind of a thing. But Square had just come out and the iPad had just come out. So if we built a little frame around both of them in a, in a cash drawer, you know, your average coffee shop or something like that could get into it. Um, and th that was great. We built it out of bamboo in a, a local kind of microfacturing kind of uh, situation. And uh, it was a lot of fun. It was very rewarding. Um, got some great coverage, got a, a bunch of great customers, but ultimately it was just way too expensive. We priced ourselves out of the market. Square entered the, the, the game with their own piece of hardware at that same time. And they were selling theirs for like $100 or $200 made out of plastic. And ours is made out of bamboo with, I don't know, 60 hours of labor each time, each one kind of thing. It was like $1,600. So we decided, let's see if we can subsidize this by trying to sell credit card processing service. So if we, you know, get someone on board using our credit card processing service that we're going to take a, sli a slight cut from, um, we can give away the hardware for practically free kind of thing. Um, and it turned out that was near impossible. People never, businesses never want to change their credit card processor, especially not to some kind of startup. But it introduced us to payment processing. And 
to the pains and challenges and, and, and horrible difficulty of payment processing and the cost of it and how much fraud there is, et cetera. Um, and that opened our eyes having, I had a, a friend that worked at Bitcoin Magazine at the time that had been just sharing constantly, this is 2011, 2012, 2013, all the time talking about Bitcoin and I just ignored it. I don't know why, I wish I hadn't. Um, but I, it just didn't resonate with me. It didn't make any sense. And then once I understood how bad the payment processing system was, now I started to get it. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. And I went into the rabbit hole and went deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, and so about uh, January of 2014, I'd spent about a year excited about Bitcoin, wanting to buy, you know, Butterfly Labs mining hardware and just all these different kind of things. Um, and I had an opportunity to pitch an investor, uh, an idea for a, a, a reusable mining hardware, like where all of the hardware that doesn't need to get thrown away, doesn't get thrown away. And the, and the ASIC itself is, is, um, upgradable. Um, and in order to do so, I decided, you know, I'm going to go ahead and read the white paper. I, I, I'm not thinking it was beyond me. Um, and just like, you know, watched explainer videos and stuff like that. And I finally read the white paper and it just blew my mind. I probably, my wife says I haven't had a, a full night's sleep since then. You know, just realizing how brilliantly it was put together and how it changed absolutely everything and how it could very well, like, it does a very good job of permanently storing cryptographically signed data. The data in Bitcoin is financial transactions, but it doesn't have to be. It could be any number of other things. Um, and so I had the idea for two projects right away uh, based on kind of the things that I was aware of in the world and what was interesting to me. One called um, Archive Chain to kind of store a permanent record of whatever you want to put up that stays there forever. What I was thinking at the time was Twitter was such a wonderful place for me to learn about uh, uh, Bitcoin, like crypto Twitter. Yeah. But it w I could find out right at that moment what the conversation was. But if I wanted to kind of remind myself what the general conversation was six months ago, that wasn't possible. I could look for a single tweet. I could look for a word. But I couldn't see what yeah. a timeline was a few months ago. And I thought that was really yeah. valuable. So I wanted to create an archive of that. And then the other half of it was something I called MovieCoin that was let's do media distribution over the internet. I was aware of BitTorrent and how incredibly powerful or effective of a mechanism for, for file distribution at incredibly low cost or really zero cost in that case was. And I thought by putting that together with kind of a pointer and a descriptor inside of a permanent blockchain, you could solve media distribution. Um, and ultimately those kind of merged into a single concept that we called uh, the Decentralized Library of Alexandria. When I we first see. announced it about 10 years ago. So. We've just been, event, that kind of evolved. We presented it to um, the, uh, the D-Web in 2016 and Sir Tim Berners-Lee was there and he said he thought it was a very thrilling idea. He really liked it. He thought we should change the name. So we thought, okay, well, let's, let's describe it as what it really is. And, and it, it got a new name called Open Index Protocol. And the whole idea was just permanent blockchain storage of any type of media uh, with kind of a standardized um, formatting, JSON formatting, so that any number of applications can read it. And we've, we've experimented with uh, property records in Wyoming. Uh, we did news records. We did uh, scientific records with Caltech. Um, so a lot of fun experimentation that eventually got to the point of discovering what the D-PIN market is now doing yeah. fills in a lot of those holes. And so I've kind of had it on the back burner. I think eventually I, we were obviously too early. You know, like we, we built it and we released a version that didn't have any mechanisms to kind of uh, uh, filter out uh, pirated content. 
And I was terrified the night before that we were just going to like that the pirate market was going to discover it and think, hey, this is permanent. They can't come after us. So it, we're just going to be inundated with a whole bunch of pirated movies the next day. And it turned out the exact opposite happened. You know, it took, you know, a week or two for anyone to put anything up. And, it, you know, year, we were way, 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 way too early. Um, but I feel like we're finally at a point where there's a there's awareness. Like, it, honestly, at the time, people didn't really believe me when I said that the Internet could be censored because no one was really actively doing it. And now it's so common, everyone knows yeah. about it. Everyone believes you, you know. So there's awareness of the problem um, and there's emergent awareness of potential solutions. Like, have you, have you heard of the term D-PIN yet? Oh, of course. Okay, yeah, we've, that, we've, that we so finally have a term for it is, is, yeah. making, is, is really making it resonate with people and that we 100%. have all these solutions for storage, for transcoding, everything. So I'm excited. I think we can finally make this stuff happen. DPIN is one of the most, you know, we're, we're investors, one of the most exciting verticals, um, particularly at this stage uh, in, in, in the space. So Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, we, it, it's a fascinating space and, and something that, you know, we, we, we're big believers in like you are. Excellent. All right. So tell us what it's like to be, tell us about what it means to be a technology director of the Web3 Working Group. What is your day-to-day -day then? Um, so Web3 Working Group is a nonprofit that was started uh, two years ago specifically to advocate, to kind of have a voice, give a voice to that sector. And this is before Deepin had a name. Um, we, were, we were talking to Sammy as he, not in the conversation as he came up with it, but part of those conversations when he came up with the term. We were all kind of batting around different ideas. I kind of liked the idea of disco, decentralized or distributed compute. Um, we knew that all of the attention was going to the financial aspects of things, both in the public's mind um, and in Congress's mind, as they finally decided to to kind of take on crypto legislation and create some amount of, you know, new laws or or clarity around this kind of stuff. Um, and you're likely only going to get a single shot at it. You know, there was only one time that Congress really took took any care of the internet and decided what they were going to do with it. And the next 20 or 30 years of how it developed in the United States and nowhere else really was because of the decisions made at the time in the late 90s. Um, and so we kind of felt like this is going to be our moment. There's going to be a couple of year period when Congress finally writes a few bills. And we want to make sure that while they're doing work to protect against scams and financial related stuff and anything else like that that's that they're bound to do that they don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and they really understand that the infrastructure of the internet itself can be re-decentralized and that the services that we rely on like just for this call to do the, the the video transcoding there is some centralized service involved there could be a decentralized protocol instead the file storage uh, for the file that ultimately will get you know pushed out for people to watch that's done on some you know web 2 uh, yeah. uh, uh, company that very well could be a protocol um, and there's a lot of people that are interested in the problem of censorship and interested in the problem of kind of monopolistic behavior from big tech that aren't yet aware that there are technological solutions. And a lot of people think that only laws can fix these kind of things, but they're not a very effective way with such, with such a large thing, especially such a large thing that doesn't belong to any one country. The internet is its own country functionally, you know what I mean? Um, and obviously websites and, and apps and stuff like that need to be compliant with local laws, but you, you, you can't force the whole uh, technology to change because one country decides that they want to uh, go a different direction. Like a great historical example of this was in the mid uh, 1800s as a few people are having the idea to kind of turn the locomotive into a car that can drive on streets. 
uh, England was very much leading the way. They they were just doing a fantastic job, you know, way out ahead of everyone else. And their uh, legislators decided, or their whatever, their government decided, this is too dangerous. I'm sure someone got run over or something. I don't know. This is too dangerous. We have to be really, really careful. We have to be incredibly cautious. And so they, they started these things called red flag laws, where yep. when you get to a city, you have to slow down to like three miles an hour and put someone 20 yards out ahead with waving a red flag and warning everyone, here comes an automobile. And one of the most hilarious ones that was actually being considered in the United States was if you're going to pass a horse, you have to park the car behind bushes and disassemble the car so it doesn't spook the horse. So these are stupid. These are really stupid ideas in retrospect. Um, but they they uh, they took them in, in the, United, the United Kingdom and it completely destroyed this nascent industry for three decades. Meanwhile, Germany comes along and Mercedes-Benz invents the vehicle because they just kind of took the, took the, 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 the space that was uh, given to them. We could make that exact same mistake now just because we have the most Web2 companies, because we have such an enormously large tech industry. The assumption is we can, we can come up with new rules and they will have to be uh, uh, complied with because people will want to stay here. Companies will want to stay here. And the truth is, developing these days is just there's no infrastructure involved you just need a laptop a nerd and a laptop and it's really easy to move around the country and move or move around the whole world and so it's there's especially as there are more and more countries that are standing up and saying we like this technology we want to embrace it we want to actually you know make some sandboxes from laws that might get in the way etc cetera, etc cetera. uh it's very inviting and so unless we do it right, we're going to lose the industry. And that's tragic because I like living in the United States and I don't want to have to move, but this technology is really important. And I know I'm not the only one that believes that. I've talked to a whole lot of people that either did choose to start up elsewhere um, or are considering moving. And and so unfortunately, yeah. some lawmakers don't understand that. Um, and so part of what we do is we educate lawmakers about what this stuff does, uh, mm -hmm. what the you know, potential side effects of being overly burdensome on it. Like the, the treasury um, recently asked for comments about some of their rulemaking. And one of the rules was uh, if you're using some sort of a decentralized service, like say, for example, storage, um, you have to, for tax compliance, you have to figure out your cost basis on the token when you bought it and then whatever the market value is now, and that's fine. But you also need to figure out what the, um, the fair market value of the service that you got was. And so in some cases, that's just, really, really onerous and difficult to do. In other cases, like in the case of Arweave, Arweave has a one-time fee for permanent storage. It's at least 200 years, and the way that they develop the whole thing is it's very likely that that will actually be forever. There is no analog for that in the normal tech world. So some of these rules simply can't be complied with, and that, that would be a problem because it just means U.S. users wouldn't be able to use them, and that, that's terrible. That's, that's a tragedy. And honestly, the rest of the world often waits for us to adopt something. So if we get on board, if Web2 developers get on board with this thing and start using it, the rest of the world will too. So we very much need to lead the way on that. Um, so what we do is we educate about these projects or the, the, these protocols, the existence of them. Um, we advocate for their adoption. And lately we've been doing work to kind of advocate for them to stay legal in the United States. We find that to be incredibly important. Uh, we have a lot of great allies in Congress and, uh, and the Senate right now. Um, but it's incredibly divided, and so it's a really hard pull. Um, so we just try to educate them as best as possible and give them as much resources as we can so that they have the, the, the best chances of making it happen. Well, I guess I should start by saying thank you for your service and your continued service. Um, I, I can't agree more that advocacy, engagement, it's so 
important at this, this point in time. Um, I'm on the Global Markets Advisory Committee of the CFTC as an example. And the lawmakers, the policymakers, they need to hear from us because in many cases they want to do the right thing, but they, they get hit with a lot of, to your point earlier, a lot of information and they have to figure out, you know, what's, what's real and what's accurate and, yep. and a lot of nuance. So um, thank yep. you for fighting the good fight. Yeah, um, fingers crossed. Yeah, man. So what advice would you have for a vet who wants to come into the space? Um, I would say recognize that it's not just um, a development community. Like, yeah, there's a lot of, of code writers, but there's a lot more than that. This technology yeah. can redefine a whole bunch of different verticals and a whole bunch of different industries. And so there are people in, in every possible profession that are, that are tack that are, you know, working on web three in some function or another. Um, so one, don't believe the stories that it's nothing but scams. There are plenty. Yes, absolutely. Every emergent technology opportunists, opportunists latch onto and, and play their games. Don't let that, you know, uh, uh, make you shy away. Look deeper at the technology, look deeper at what it can do and see if it resonates with what's important to you. And if it does, there are opportunities out there. There's a lot of companies that are hiring, especially kind of as we're moving into this next bull market, it feels like we're right there with the ETF approval and we're at 46, 47 today kind of thing. Um, you know, bull markets, there's there's a lot more hiring, there's a lot more startups and stuff like that. So there's, there's massive opportunities to work in the space. Um, you know, don't hold back. This is this is a, an emergent phenomenon, especially the marriage of Web three and AI, and then add on top of that kind of VR with Apple coming out with their their uh, Provision thing later this year and etc. Um, this is the next trillion dollar uh, industry. Be a part of it. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. So we um, you, you talked about Deepin earlier on. You talked about the intersection of AI and crypto. Those are two you know massive investment themes right now. And frankly, for that reason, areas of growth. Um, what excites you the most about Web3? If you were a vet, would you be focusing on one of those verticals? Um, that, honestly, the, 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 the overlap of AI and, uh, and well, and specifically Deepin. Um, because like a lot of people that talk about the, the scary aspects of AI, they look at the Hollywood version and the Hollywood version doesn't really understand technology very well, let's be honest. Um, but they all, what they don't recognize is that they're, presumption is that this is all based on some central point of failure, some single company, some single computer, some the, 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 the knows everything supercomputer. Um, it's unlikely for that to develop in the first place, but also we can push it in a decentralized direction um, by putting your training data on a, a public blockchain like Arweave, by uh, using GP, a GPU rental market like a cache to get access to the, to the training hardware, the, the high-end GPUs that would otherwise cost you know twenty thousand dollars to buy. You can instead rent them for two dollars an hour in an open marketplace that can't deny you based on you know them not liking you or something like that. Um, there is freedom to use all the hardware necessary in order to do AI in a decentralized way, where it's a bunch of individual uh, agents that serve us rather than the super Google AI. And everyone can can tell that we don't want the super Google AI. We we don't want OpenAI to be this, the, the singular dominant uh, force because any single dominant force is going to apply its biases in a way that doesn't meet the needs of the, in, of, of, of the marketplace. AOL is the perfect 
proof of that. There was a time, like I said, when people thought that AOL was the internet. I think there was a stat that like 60% of all the CDs printed in the world in the late 90s were AOL disks. They had the chance to completely dominate the internet, but they were a single company and their best efforts meant they could only reach one portion of the of, of the market. There's gonna be some people that just don't like the interface that they chose for their stocks or any number of reasons. But as soon as you have a competitive marketplace, HTTP with any number of applications built on top of it, they can do all the same things that AOL could, but with diversity of approaches, uh, who built it, what it looks like, how, you know, how it works, et cetera, that's way easier to be adopted. And we're gonna see the same thing, I think, when it comes to taking AI and building it on top of decentralized protocols, specifically kind of DPIN and, and, and Bitcoin, um, we're going to see the exact same thing. We're going to see a lot of competition. We're not going to have a single uh, uh, you know, monolith that controls everything. And thank goodness, you know, thank yep. goodness, because we won't have the doomsday scenario and it'll really level up how powerful every single person can be. And that's that's wonderful. Yeah, it's a, it's a big um, question, right? Open versus closed, um, transparent versus controlled, right? So exactly. you know, when you're looking at model training, when you're looking at data. So I, I think it's going to be a pretty big battleground and we're already seeing um, the fight un un unwinding. So mm -hmm. super interesting times, ton of, ton of opportunity. And I'm Absolutely. with you. I, I'm of the school of thought that it's not time to decelerate. You know, the genie's out of the bottle. We need to accelerate. Exactly. And, exactly. and not only the tech, but also the policy, right? And exactly. also the risk management and the ethics. Like we should yep. be should be studying. Um, so to your point, beyond the technical side. So mm -hmm. awesome, Deb. Any any last thoughts? Oh, I don't know. I talked about a whole bunch. I, not, nothing in particular. No, I'm just no. Uh, I'm I'm bullish. I'm 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 very very bullish. I think we're gonna have a great cycle. I think we have a good chance that we're gonna have a good set of laws. Um, and that we're learning quickly from 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 other areas. So even if we kind of get it wrong as a slight misstep, we'll correct it because competition is there. And I and I, I am excited. I think AI, I've been in this for ten years. My wife often looks at me and goes, "Why is it taking so long for such incredibly important technology to be adopted?" But it's hard to remember. To it's easy to forget that um, the internet was ten years old before they even uh, you know had the idea of DNS. Uh, or I think 20 years before the idea of DNS. And so these things happen, but then there's every once in a while, there's a mechanism that accelerates things. And I think HTTP was the mechanism that acceler accelerated the internet. Um, and I think AI is the thing that's going to accelerate Web3 and Web3 development and Web3 adoption. So it's awesome. just the right time right now. I, I agree. And how can people connect with you? Uh, I'm personally on Twitter or X at Devin R. James. Uh, the organization is on all socials and YouTube at Web3WG. Please uh, check out the, we, we've made a basic series on uh, on YouTube just to kind of help uh, lawmakers as we would get in touch with them. They would say, you know, I've got uh, one of my staffers trying to kind of get familiarized with this stuff, but everything that they find when they try to find out, you know, what is blockchain is either way too in the weeds and just the industry talking to the industry with with jargon and you know all this other stuff or uh no details at all and so we we set out to do to solve exactly that where it has a whole bunch of technical details but it explains them with analogies and stuff like that so we start from the beginnings with um public key cryptography and, and the history of blockchain and get through bitcoin and ethereum and get into some of the deep in projects so please check those out they're they're a resource for the public that's why we built them 
um, and give us feedback. You know, what other kind of things should we should we uh, uh, be be creating content to educate with? Excellent. Well, really appreciate your thoughts today, Marine. Um, I also enjoy I happen to enjoy talking to other Marines, uh, particularly in Web three. Thanks Semper again Fire. for your, yeah. Thanks for your thank, service. Thank you, well. Chris. You too. The work that you're doing and engaging and advocating, I can't understate it enough. It's it's a big deal, um, and it's it's so crucial at this point in the evolution of these markets. Thank you. Um, also, wanted to thank our sponsor, Luca. Um, you know, Luca is actually the CEOs of Marine as well. So, um, shout out to them. And maybe Fabulous. I can uh, and for those of you who are interested in learning more about Vita, uh, please connect with us on LinkedIn or Twitter. And if you have ideas about who else we should have on the show, uh, please hit me on Twitter at PerkinsCR97. Thanks again, Devin. Appreciate it, man. Thanks, Chris.